Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robots Podcast. Could you please introduce yourself? Yes, my name is Clément Gosselin and I'm a professor at Laval University in Quebec City in Canada, where I'm holding the Canada Research Chair in Robotics and Mechatronics since 2001. I've been involved with robotics for more than three decades now. I, my background is mechanical engineering, so I'm working mainly on the design development of novel robotic architectures. I've been working in the past mainly on parallel robots, robotic hands, and more recently on the development of uh, robots for human-robot, physical human-robot interaction. Very interesting. So I would like to go back when you were a child. Have you ever think about robotics or any science related to this kind of technology? Was this creep or interesting for you as a child, if you remember? Yes. Uh... I have a couple of memories. Uh, to a robot was uh, maybe through television series where there would be some robots involved. Uh, but I, I remember one year when I was a child that uh, for Halloween I dressed up as a robot. Mm-hmm. So I built myself a robot costume, and uh, that made me uh, think of perhaps. In, in, in a way of the complexity of uh, what would be involved in, in a robot. Of course, in the mind of a child, it's different than in the mind of an engineer, but uh, I remember thinking, you know, what, uh, what it would be like to have uh, a humanoid robot. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting memory. So, because you have really overwhelming experience robotics and you consider the leader in the field as well, how you would define robotics from your experience? Well, for me, a robot is uh, something that interacts, a, a system that interacts with the physical world. So I'm more, like I said, on the mechanical side. So for me, a robot has the capability to interact with the, the world, the physical world, but it does so under the control of a, a computer or some form of uh, intelligent system. Uh, I know that other people consider, for example, algorithms that are uh, operating on the web, for example, as robots. For me, this is a a different area. Uh, But uh, when I work with robots, I see them as as, uh, physical beings. Mm -hmm. So you mainly focus about parallel mechanisms and articulated uh, robotic hands. But I would like to ask you in this three, 30 years, how you would see this progress of robotics? from 30 years till now, the progress? Yes, yes. Well, that's that's a very interesting question because many has happened, obviously, over the, the past three decades. And uh, one of the things that happened is that the computing power that we have at our disposal now is uh, completely different from what we had 30 years ago. So in terms of intelligent algorithms, uh, we can do a lot more than we used to be able to do. However, if you look at the early robots that were used in in factories 30 years ago, 
and the robots that are used now, in terms of their mechanical components, they are not that different. Uh, we're still using uh, electromechanical systems. We're, we're still using electric motors to, to power the joints of robots. Of course, they have improved, but they have not seen drastic changes. And so the limitations that uh, are uh, involved in robots, if we want, for example, to develop robots that can interact with people, uh, the limitations are still there. And so we have to work around these limitations and find innovative ways of, uh, of using mechanical systems. So maybe to, to put it in a different way, uh, some colleagues working in the computer science departments, they, when they, they solve an algorithm, they say, okay, the problem is solved. But for me, even if I have a very good algorithm to do things, I still need to implement it physically. And uh, physical limitations, I think, are, are important. Mm -hmm. I think this is very interesting, Brian, because it even applies to an industry as well, software company or hardware company. So when we go to physical world, it's very expensive. And, and I would like to ask you how we can manage to get over this limitation. Where the problems come from, do you think? Yeah, I mean, when we face the, the physical world, we face the laws of physics. And so there are some limitations already there. However, I'm not claiming that we have reached uh, the limits of what uh, physics can, can do. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, we have to develop technology that is specifically appropriate for robots. And in the past, uh, technology, what we've been doing in robotics is to use the technology that was developed for other means. And so that's why, for example, electric motors are not maybe the best way to, to uh, uh, to drive a robot, but uh, they are the means that we have at our disposal, and they, they are they are very appropriate for some applications, uh, and they've been perfected over time and so on. So we use them because they are quite mature, but there are many other physical principles that could be used that perhaps would be better for robotics, but they're simply not as mature as the the technology that we have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if I ask you, what are the most misconceptions about robotics you, uh, you notice in this journey? What are misconceptions? Uh, if we're talking about, let's say, the, the general public, uh, I think one of the big challenges of roboticists is that uh, everybody has seen you know, movies where robots are super powerful and they can overtake the world and, and, and so on. And so for a roboticist to explain their work to the general public is a little bit difficult because most people don't realize all the, <clears throat> the challenges that are involved in the development of robots. So I would say that th this is a misconception. Like if you ask people what is the state of the art in robotics, they will generally overestimate it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And do you think this comes down from what is this kind of hype or uh, a little bit, but also because, as usual, uh, what you see in the area of arts, uh, films, and so on is always ahead of what we can do in science, right? This, this is the, the purpose of science fiction, is to try to imagine what could happen if we could master this and that phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, uh, we face this, this challenge. Mm -hmm. 
So I'm curious to ask you how you would see intelligence or robotics, because you have a lot of writers in projects from designing mechanical intelligence design, and now we have artificial intelligence. So how you see the intelligence is emerging of both of them, or how you would see it from your eyes? Yes, well, like you say, I have been working on this concept of mechanical intelligence. And one of the reasons for this is to try to develop mechanical systems that are as simple as possible, that can perform tasks and have this natural intelligence embedded in them. But of course, that doesn't prevent them from being driven by uh, more advanced uh, AI algorithms, uh, such that they can learn from, from the uh, the, the, the experience that they have with uh, interacting with the world and so on. And so what I, uh, the, the promise that I see there with AI coming into robotics is obviously this idea of learning, because if a robotic system can learn from its, uh, its own operations, then the, uh, the possibilities are, are really interesting. So I see AI as something that could help robotics uh, in terms of deploying robots, uh, making them more autonomous, and so on. Now, in terms of developing new robots, there's also possibilities there, because so far we've been working mainly with human intuition, with uh, uh, scientific progress, and so on. But uh, if we include intelligence in, in this design process, maybe some surprising things could come up. Mm -hmm. But as you may know, for example, there's some companies in Silicon Valley like uh, Starsky fall down and because of expensive collecting of data set and, and that's something I don't know how you see it from academia to industry. What is really the most technological roadblocks to transfer ideas from lab to real world? What is the challenge lies here? Yeah, well, like I said before, I'm, I'm mostly interested in the, the physical world and, and hardware. Uh, and so I think at the moment, this is this could be considered a roadblock because the, the software part of robotics has evolved so much, but the hardware part has not completely followed. I'll give you an example to mm -hmm. explain what I mean. Uh, if you look at uh, intelligent vehicles, uh, autonomous cars, for example, progress over the past uh, one or two decades has been incredible. Like uh, we have accomplished a lot and autonomous cars are almost commercial reality. And one of the reasons for this is because in terms of the hardware, there, there's not so much challenge because we know how to build cars. We've built cars for a century. So there's no challenge there in the hardware of the, of the car. Of course, there's a lot of challenge in the reception and uh, hardware for, for the, uh, the sensors and all that, but the car itself is something that's very mature. Now, in parallel with this, if you compare this with, let's say, robots that you could use at home, the progress has been a lot slower. And one of the reasons is because we don't know how to do that. We don't know how to build a robot that would be powerful enough to perform tasks that are useful, but at the same time is safe for people to use, can understand the, uh, the different tax, tasks mechanically and so on. Mm -hmm. So I think that the hardware part is right now, we can consider it uh, one of the roadblocks. So I'm, I'm, I'm also curious to ask you about what are most uh, mind-blowing or scary robots 
you see in this 30 years when you started in the field? Something was mind-blowing or scary? Uh, one of the things that in, in impresses uh, people, and uh, they impress me too, is the, these uh, videos of uh, humanoid robots. Uh, you know, we see them and uh, they, they look like they're performing tasks like mm -hmm. humans. They, they, they really strike the imagination because they look like athletes, you know, performing uh, backflips and, and things like that. So I find that very impressive. At the same time, uh, this is one of the, uh, the, the reasons why people overestimate the capabilities of, uh, of modern robotics because they see these videos and they think that these robotic systems are completely autonomous and that they, they can do anything. Mm -hmm. Of course, there have been programs specifically to, to do the, the, the exercises that we see them doing. Mm -hmm. uh, but still, it is very impressive that at this point in time we're able to do that. I find that very impressive. Mm -hmm. And what is your thought about uh, new generation of robotics? For example, you have work about deformable grippers. Do you think that robotics can play a significant role in robotics uh, field in general, or it's still too early to manifest the contribution? Well, I, I think that. Uh, there's a lot of potential uh, and right now the people are trying different uh, means of, uh, of actuation for example and combining this with AI combining this with advanced sensors and so on and so I, I think in the next uh, decade or so there will still be uh, a lot of progress in robotics and there's potential for robots to undertake tasks that we do not uh, uh, think of them as capable of doing right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if I ask you what the challenges you face already in uh, in the research or something you aiming to achieve in, in the coming years for robotics research perspective? Yeah. Uh, right now, I'm very much interested in uh, uh, human-robot interaction, physical human-robot interaction. So I look at the, uh, the cobots that you can find commercially. You can buy robots where the supplier will tell you, okay, you don't need to fence this robot, it is safe, and so on. I look at how people can physically interact with them, and I'm not very happy with them because I think that they are pretty much the same as the robots we used before, except that uh, maybe they're a bit lighter, they're a bit slower, so they're safer, and so on. But the interaction is still far from being natural. It's not like interacting with a coworker, for example. Mm -hmm. So this is one of the challenges that uh, I'm addressing right now. I would like to be able to build robots that can work with people and that really can feel like you're interacting with a co-worker. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, if I'm uh, moving a table with you and uh, we're, we're at uh, each of the ends of the table and we're moving the table around, we can feel each other's uh, reactions and so on. So if we could do something like that with, uh, with robots, we had robots that can really feel like co-workers, then that, that would be a great achievement, I think. Mm -hmm. um, I'm also going to ask you about simulation. Do you think simulation up to now can achieve fulfillment results or expect how the robot would behave instead of going to physical experiments? It's very expensive. How, how do you think about simulation? It still have challenges so that we can match reality as well. So instead of going to physical experiment, which is very expensive. 
Yeah, uh, simulation has also evolved quite a bit. Uh, and uh, dynamic simulation, for example, now is something that is state of the art. You know, we can use it, we can simulate a dynamical system very easily. Uh, we can simulate more complex things, uh, interactions, uh, uh, interactive behavior of different uh, physical bodies, and so on. Um, and so we can go uh, quite a long way with, uh, with simulation. And uh, of course, there, at some point we reach uh, a level of sophistication in the simulation where we need to go to experiments. But you are absolutely right. It is, there is a, a very large difference in terms of cost between doing things experimentally and doing simulation. So probably in robotics, uh, simulation is slightly uh, underexploited and it could be exploited a bit more such that uh, we, would we would limit the, the need for, for experiments. But of course, uh, if you talk to researchers like myself, I really like doing experiments. Mm -hmm. And so after, you know, when we reach some point in, in the development of ideas, we really look forward to implementing them. And so we, uh, we tend to perhaps go to, uh, to hardware maybe a little too quickly. Yeah. So concerning the mechanical intelligence, because if we apply even to soft robotics or continuum robotics, how you get an inspiration for new design? If you make in terms of innovative mechanical design, how will you get an inspiration for this design? Yeah, well, surprisingly, uh, they do not necessarily come from the biological world. Uh, these mechanical intelligence, mechanically intelligent systems. Uh, some of them, the inspiration for for some of them came from simulation. In fact, uh, mm. simulating, for example, for robotic hands, uh, we've been doing quite a bit of work on that. So, simulating the grasping of objects with hands and uh, simulating the contact forces and so on has in, indeed uh, been useful to uh, get some inspiration for the for embedding the mechanical intelligence in the in the hands themselves of course the biological world is also a source of uh, of inspiration we uh, we we have so many various forms of uh, of life that are that are available in the uh, biological world and we can get inspiration from from many different sources in this area uh, but i would say that uh, what drives the the innovation in, the, in this area uh, is well, one of the things that drives innovation in, in this area is really the determination of the researchers to try to reach a certain goal for example easy grasping of objects with the minimum uh, complexity systems and so this is like you know I, I would say some kind of an, an objective that people may we, we, we tend to get really 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 involved in and we try to uh, by all means to uh, to attain this goal uh, by trying different mechanical systems mm -hmm. yeah so um, for robotics and, and and the goal do you think any significant decision shouldn't be or mustn't be taken by uh, or the machine or delegated to a machine in general. Do you agree with that? And how we make sure this technology you develop for 
and robotics is going to be used for the good as well? Yes, uh, that's a very good question, actually. Uh, decision making, for example, you know, uh, for example, uh, would you be comfortable uh, being a passenger in an aircraft if the pilot is a robot, you know, and takes all the decisions? Uh, this is this is a very good question. I think that uh, the uh, the important decisions related to uh, let's say social uh, or uh, national issues and so on will remain in the hands of humans for a long time, obviously. However, decisions related to uh, technical issues uh, many in many different areas. I think could be delegated to intelligent machines. Uh, the, there are advantages and disadvantages of machines over humans for making decisions at this time. Uh, but I think in many areas, the advantages outweigh the, the disadvantages. Uh, one of the issues, of course, if we go that on that road, is that we tend to think of machines as perfect, so we don't allow them to, to make mistakes, whereas humans are allowed to make mistakes. And so it, it is a, a, a very critical issue in developing such systems and implementing them that the expectations are very high. So it's, uh, it's a challenging uh, issue to, to be able to delegate decisions to, to machines. But I, I think I think it's feasible. We're close to a point where it could be implemented for, for technical decisions. Mm -hmm. And do you think it comes down to trust as well? A trust a machine or a bot? Do you think something uh, is worrying to you? How to trust a machine? I'm not too worried about that because uh, I think that the, the day we decide to do that, like to defer to a machine for making decisions, uh, will be because we believe that the machine is capable of doing that. Mm -hmm. But I think because now, as you can see, that robotics has become interdisciplinary and there's a lot of field inter intervene in, uh, in research. Do you think the challenging when you speak different languages from different fields? It's, and for example, soft robotics is still challenging to understand or maybe apply control methods, which is destroy the natural dynamic. That's the issue we have. And I don't know if you think about how we can overcome these issues, um, for example. Yes, that's a very good question. And uh, it's this is a reality in many research areas, not only in robotics, that you know things are becoming more uh, multidisciplinary, like you say. And so we need to interact with uh, other researchers who see things very differently speak a different language like uh, like you say uh, I think that uh, maybe one of the uh, one of the things that can help us uh, with respect to that is that in all the different areas of robotics I think that most researchers are starting to look at robotics in a, in a more global way for example I said that you know I'm mostly interested in the physical world uh, I'm a mechanical engineer, so I, I want to develop robot architectures and so on. However, uh, I'm part of a research center and I have colleagues uh, working in computer science uh, who are looking at robotics in a completely different way. And mm. we tend to inter interact more and more 
Uh, we use tools that are now similar. Uh, we, I see what they're doing in terms of the behavior of robots. And then I try to project this into, the, into my own research space and so on. I think that this is a general trend. I look at the IEEE uh, conferences, for example, mm-hmm. they're becoming more and more um, uh, multidisciplinary. And so there is a, uh, a certain evolution of robotics research towards this, uh, this direction. So I think there is hope <laughs> that we can understand each other mm-hmm. and uh, eventually uh, contribute together to make progress in robotics that is uh, beyond what we've done in the past. Mm-hmm. But I think that's an interesting um, perspective because if we speak about critical uh, application, for example, in biomedical, so how we can make sure that, for example, using toxic material, because maybe when you have a grant and project uh, for three years, you have to come up with application. and But at the end of the day, the the basis of the project and the material was toxic and that's why do you think it just comes down to like ethics or regulation or maybe awareness because it's lead to another perspective as well like the end goal of the project and make sure it is it is, doesn't uh, deploy toxic material or something could be in danger in the long term yes yes uh, I'll, I'll give you an example which may be uh, a little bit trivial but uh, I, I said that I've been working on robotic hands. Uh, I've also worked, uh, I've tried to apply this work to prosthetics. Mm-hmm. And so we did some work in the lab and we thought, okay, these hands, these, these underactuated hands, they could be useful for prosthesis and so on. We did quite a bit of work. And uh, I remember when we started to get in touch with people at the uh, Rehab Institute, we one day we went uh, there and we met some people who every day fit prosthesis to people and we spent a couple of hours there and I think we learned more than in one year in the lab if prior to that because we could see exactly what were the needs mm. for this particular application and start to understand what these needs mean in terms of our, our work so this was really an eye-opener for me to think that you know you can work in your lab and you can have your own ideas and so on but if you're targeting certain applications it's obvious from the outset that you should talk to people who are specialists uh, in this application so after this experience in other projects i've always tried at the beginning of the projects to try to talk to people not only read uh, material on the web but talk to people who work in these areas uh, such that you get, you know, the really the hands-on uh, experience that they have with applications. I think it is a wonderful uh, message as well because I think that's something we have to consider, and I think it's a wonderful example. And that leads me to question about um, because you you this is very interesting point you say. Do you think when we do a project uh, or get funding in acad- an academic project, do you think it must be either um, technology-driven or product-driven? Because sometimes when you work with technology, it sounds sometimes kind of bleak and doomed. You don't know where you have to go, what is what you're looking for, the designing, what is the maximum performance you're looking for, for example. 
or maybe product driven? Which one do you think we have to focus on, technology or product driven? Yeah, I think we need both actually, and I've I've been doing both. Mm -hmm. uh, I've done research projects with companies where, obviously, the, uh, the the goal was you know product driven. They they have some product that they would like to develop or some issues that they would like to solve. So we have to focus on that and try to orient the research so that we will eventually be able to solve these problems. However, on the other hand, in other projects which are more, for example, projects that are funded by funding agencies and uh, maybe more open-ended, uh, mm. in such projects we've uh, focused on trying to advance the technology, sometimes not knowing exactly how it will be applied. Uh, and sometimes we feel that, like you say, we are not exactly sure of what we're doing and we would like to have some numbers you know, to guide us. But sometimes it's good that we don't have these numbers because it helps us to think outside of the box and think, what if we did this? What if we did that? Mm -hmm. We end up with some, some characteristics that are different from what we have envisioned in the beginning, but they may be useful for, for some specific applications, other applications. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that leads to the question, how, how we ensure that the robotics developed is beneficial to humanity as a whole? How, how when we have this kind of work at the beginning, we make sure it's going to be beneficial? If you work in the lab, so how you make sure this happens in the long term? Yeah, I, I think the expression making sure uh, does not apply because we cannot make sure that it, uh, it will be uh, useful and uh, and it will really, in the long run, be uh, effective. Uh, however, we try to aim for that. And so we try to orient the research in such a way that we see some leads and we try to choose the leads that are that have the most potential to get us to somewhere. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, that's the best we can do. If we knew exactly what we were doing, it wouldn't be research. You know, that's, you know, a common statement, but uh, uh, the research directions are things that we can we can modulate, obviously. Mm -hmm. So if I ask you a futuristic question, when you look to the future of robotics, have you ever imagined how this could be something like crazy ideas about shape of robotics or design or something? Have you vision about that in the future, how it would look looks like? Yeah, my, my vision is uh, robots helping people uh, in many different ways, in industrial setting, in, in uh, healthcare areas, uh, agriculture, and so on. I think one of the challenges uh, that humanity faces now is mm. to take better care of our world, of, of, of the earth and, and the environment. And so I think that robotics can help tremendously with that. Uh, for example, in agri agriculture, like the current agricultural practices of using, for example, pesticides uh, mm -hmm. are, are driven mainly by economic uh, needs, because if you don't use the pesticides, it means you have to, you know, pick up the weeds uh, and so on. And so that's very labor intensive, but robots are, are good at that. Robot can do labor intensive tasks. And so uh, they can weed your, your, your garden. Uh, they could be powered with, you know, solar energy, whatever, you know, you can imagine lots of scenarios, but I think 
robotics could be a, a strong component, an important component of uh, trying to develop uh, technology in a more Earth-friendly way. Mm-hmm. And given the current situation, um, do you think in pandemic theories, do you think that robotics how can mitigate on the, the economic losses, for example, and also in health levels? So how you would envision the next uh, coming years, the more interest in robotics and intelligent system that can be replaced human being in such a scenario like that? Have you ever thought about that? Yes, yes. Well, the, the pandemic that we're facing right now is, is a, a good example of uh, what could stimulate the development of robotics, for example, in the healthcare system. Uh, if if we can make use of, of robots to try to improve the uh, the, uh, the efficiency of the uh, the service in the, the hospitals, for example, then it means that we need to expose fewer people to dangerous situations, and we need we also we can make their environment safer, easier uh, for you know for the healthcare workers. Uh, I mentioned agriculture before. This is another area. Uh, and I think that uh, in terms of, uh, of the economy, uh, developing robots that would have such characteristics, uh, economically speaking, could be very good opportunities uh, and uh, help to you know, have something that, that would be uh, sustainable. Yeah. So do you think human robotics can get along in such scenarios? It could be competitive or cooperative. How you would see this kind of um, work robotics with human? Yeah, uh, like I said before, if we had robotic robotic systems that uh, you can interact with and that feel like co-workers, uh, you could perhaps even assign tasks to them very naturally a little bit like you would tell a coworker, you know, to do this or that. Uh, if you could imagine such systems that uh, could have some kind of autonomy, where they perform tasks and they uh, they can report that these tasks have been accomplished and what is the result, what they have done, and so on, then they get more and more fully integrated into the uh, the working team. And so that's that's the, the vision that I have. But there are big challenges, you know, to be able to do that. Uh, having a robot that is uh, uh, going around cleaning a floor, for example, mm-hmm. is one thing, or, or you know, a vacuum cleaner, a robot type of thing. But having a robot that will go around and uh, visit patients in, in their room and uh, move them about. Uh, sit them up in their bed and so on. That's a completely different story. So there are many, many challenges uh, involved with that. And what do you think that, yeah. And what do you think what could make soft robotics startup or company successful when you have a product at the beginning uh, and how we make sure that we be successful in the industrial sector? Yeah, to, to get this started, Mainly, you need to have what what is called killer applications, applications where it is obvious that soft robotics will have a lot of success. Because you know, if you start uh, something, if you start a company and uh, you're trying to develop new products, 
uh, you will be successful if people buy this product. If you have customers, you'll be you'll be in business. So uh, most companies that fail, they don't fail because they don't have a good product. They fail because they don't have customers. Uh, so that's the. I think this is the challenge for a starting soft robotics company now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's to try to find these scalar applications where the, it would be very obvious and it, there would be a big advantage of using a soft robot. Uh, we can think of several such applications now, whether we can find, uh, develop robots that will be very successful at these applications is another story. And also people have to have confidence that, you know, the robots can do these, uh, these applications and so on. Mm-hmm. So I think it, it is still very challenging for soft robotics, but it will come. It will definitely come. Mm-hmm. And do you think in the next decades, what uh, what do you think, the, how how would be the progress, again, of robotics in the next decades if we focus on certain uh, roadblocks to solve these issues for, for the next decade? How you would imagine yeah. solving this uh, technological roadblocks in next decades? Are you uh, thinking more in terms of soft robotics or robotics Robotics in general, in general and soft robotics uh, as a, a miniature because in the end of the day, soft robotics is a part of robotics in a in, in way or another. Yeah, yeah. Well, in robotics in general, I think one, one obvious uh, product that will, that will be, become commercial is uh, autonomous vehicles. I think this is very close to being commercially uh, uh, mature enough to be commercially available. Uh, in terms of uh, robotics, more related to, let's say, robot arms, human-made robots, soft robotics, uh, I think applications in healthcare is uh, something that will uh, that will emerge. Uh, there, there are so many needs, and uh, in, in most industrial countries, it, it is not easy to find uh, to have all the manpower that is required to perform all these tasks. So this this is an application where soft robotics could be uh, very successful, I think. Mm-hmm. And finally, I mentioned uh, agriculture. This is uh, another area because of the, uh, the the current evolution of uh, agriculture and all the uh, the, the questions uh, that are being asked about the way we, we do agriculture right now. I think this is another area where robotics could uh, could be very very useful. Mm-hmm. And do you think how we can engage in our public and robotics um, and make outreaching of the potential behind robotics in the longer term? Yes, that's that's very interesting. There are many initiatives, you know, to try, for example, to uh, uh, get uh, high school students interested in robotics, uh, competitions, demonstrations, and so on. Uh, I had a couple of my PhD students who were volunteering in, in high schools to help teams uh, of students building robots and so on. I think it, it is, uh, in general, not too difficult to uh, get young people interested in robotics because it is attractive. Uh, it is something that's a little bit intriguing. Uh, so this this is, this is one of the strengths of uh, robotics research, is the capability to get young people interested. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm curious to ask you if, if there's upcoming projects you are working on uh, for robotics or AI projects. Yes, 
uh, I have several projects and uh, some of them involve uh, uh, developing novel robotic architectures for uh, for human robot interaction physical human robot interaction uh, like I said I look at the uh, cobots that we can find uh, in the commercial world right now and I'm not so happy with them so I would like them to be uh, uh, capable of interacting with people with a, ver a much broader bandwidth uh, I would like people to be able to interact with them very naturally, uh, physically moving them a little bit like you would move if you grab your colleague's arm and, mm -hmm. and move it to position it somewhere. So something that would be uh, very similar to that. So right now I'm, I'm uh, focusing on, uh, on this kind of application where I would like robots to be able to physically interact with humans, just like humans interact with, uh, with each other. Mm -hmm. And do you think this kind of work can help people to get to get a, along with loneliness because this kind of issue we have in our communities? Do you think robots can fulfill this rule? Yes, I think so. I think uh, you know we've seen uh, experiments uh, with uh, robots, for example, in Japan with the elderly people and so on. I think this can be really something that uh, that would help uh, to have people, uh, you know, have a sense of interacting with the world, uh, although they are they, they may be uh, living by themselves and so on and not being very mobile. Uh, there, 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 uh, there's a quite a bit of challenge uh, in doing that, but there's a big potential there. Yeah. So later on that in next 100 year, what thing you wish for humanity can do? Well, like I said, I think uh, well, my wish would be that humanity would learn to treat the planet better than it does right now. Uh, and uh, I think robotics can play a significant role with that. Uh, I mentioned agriculture. This is uh, a very significant area where we have to rethink the way uh, things are being done. Uh, and uh, also uh, robotics can be useful in, in the way humans treat not only the planet but also other humans uh, I mentioned the healthcare taking care of the elderly uh, facilitating communication uh, interaction and so on and if I ask you what do you think most important qualities for the researcher as you have this overwhelming experience what is something you can recommend about the qualities of researcher i think the first quality is passion like if you're passionate about your work you uh, you you can do many things and you can have ideas and so on if you uh, if you're really uh, interested in, in making progress in your work and this will also stimulate people working with you and so on so i think that's the the first uh, the first quality of course you know you need to have uh, some sense of organization try to get your work somewhere by trying to find the best uh, leads in the in the, the research the, those that have the most potential and so on so some kind of a balance between thinking outside of the box and trying to get somewhere with the, with the research. But definitely, I think passion is the first uh, driver for research. Mm -hmm. And for BG student who may be listening uh, to you, what do you recommend them 
mezzogiorni. This recommendation would be to read the literature. Uh, if you're interested in a particular area, before you start doing things, you have to read quite a bit. So people tend to write sometimes before they read or more than they read, but mm -hmm. uh, reading is very important to try to see what other people have done and uh, to try to get a good idea, uh, take, try to get the big picture. Uh, the other advice that I, that I give them is not to be afraid of their ideas. Sometimes you get ideas and you think, oh, this is a ridiculous idea. But, you know, any idea is worth investigating at least a bit, you know, at least to see, to confront it to reality and to see if it could lead somewhere. Mm -hmm. So to think outside of the box and not to be afraid of, of your own ideas. Yeah. And which book inspired you? Um, maybe every day when you woke up, gives you inspiration, you would recommend uh, to must read? Well, one book that I really enjoyed reading and which has inspired me uh, is the book that uh, Simon Singh wrote about the last theorem of Fermat. Uh, it's a book about this uh, Fermat theorem on mathematics and how it was eventually solved in the 20th century, uh, 300 years after it was uh, stated. And what I found interesting in that, uh, in that particular book was that this, uh, we, we, we could call it a riddle that was uh, uh, formulated by Felma, has fascinated people mm -hmm. and occupied their mind for so long that it has generated many, many byproducts. Many things came out uh, in mathematical science because people were interested in this particular theorem. So I, if, if I make a parallel with robotics is if we're aiming for something that we cannot do right now, it stimulates our ideas and it stimulates the development of many components of eventually later that eventually later can lead to solving this particular problem that we cannot solve right now. That's wonderful. So finally, if you have, if remember, this advice was given to you um, we was a person professionally and was life changing to you would like to share yeah the uh, i i think uh, the the person that i, I think can mention was my phd advisor mm -hmm. uh, professor Jorge angelis at mcgill and uh, what he taught me really or his advice was to have confidence in what you develop and uh, i think this is this is the best advice that is, you work on something, you get some results, you should be confident that, you know, it's worth something. Mm. And uh, like I said before, even if you have ideas that seem, you know, not too promising, try to investigate that and confront them to reality and see whether or not it is true that they're, that they're not uh, valuable ideas. And this has served me several times, you know, to try to be confident about the, uh, the development that, that you're making. That's a beautiful advice. So I would like to ask if you have final words to robotics community uh, at the end of the podcast. Well, the uh, the final word is uh, we have a lot of work to do. Mm -hmm. the, there are many, many, uh, the, there's a lot of potential 
for robotics at this time and many applications that could benefit from robotics. So my, my word to the uh, robotics community would be to keep trying because we uh, were facing many issues uh, as, as uh, human beings, but robotics can help in many areas. And so we need to keep the, the robotics research going strong. Thanks so much for thoughtful discussion at the podcast on behalf of IEEE Robotics Society. I would like to thank you for your time. Thanks so much. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thank you.